This is Inside Geneva. I'm your host, Imogen Folks, and this is a Swiss Info production. In today's programme... Outer space, cyberspace and information space. Warfare is dramatically spreading across three new surfaces. The whole concept of humanitarianism, which was very religious at the time, has got to change because the world has evolved since then. Instead of bringing help because of compassion, I think that we shall recognize that the victims of war have rights. We shall move from this compassion attitude, which is very much religious, to rights of the victims. We are now faced with the risk of big war between great powers, between China, Russia, Europe, US, India. Hello and welcome to Inside Geneva. In this episode, we're going to have a long, hard look at the changing face of war and specifically what that might or should mean for humanitarian work. Do humanitarians need to take a look at themselves? Do politicians need to take a look at war, the reasons for it, how they wage it? To join me, I have got three experts. First of all, Hugo Slim from Oxford University. He's just written a book looking specifically at some of these themes. It's called Solferino 21. We're going to come back to the reason for that title in a moment. But to introduce my other guests, Paula Gaeta, Professor of International Law at Geneva's Graduate Institute, Some listeners may remember she joined us a few podcasts ago to talk about lethal autonomous weapons. They, of course, are part of the changing face of war. And as ever, our analyst, Daniel Warner. Hugo, I'm going to come to you first. As we said, your book is called Solferino 21. Not everybody's going to know what Solferino was. I know it was a very important battle, but I'm going to let you explain exactly what it was and why you chose that title. Thank you very much, Imogen. Well, Solferino um, is a charming town up in Lombardia in northern Italy. But in 1859, it was the scene of a huge battle, which was um, a major turning point in what was the Italian War of Independence at that time. At Solferino... Two huge enemies clashed, the Habsburg Empire, the Austro-Hungarian forces under their great emperor, and the invading force of Louis Napoleon III, the French emperor, and the Italian Piedmontese forces struggling for their independence. There was a huge battle that lasted 14 hours over a front of about 40 kilometers, and it involved 300,000 soldiers. And in those 14 hours, tens of thousands of soldiers were killed and tens of thousands more were left wounded. And it is important to humanitarianism because there was a Swiss chap called Henri Dunant who was staying near Solferino in a place called Castiglione, trying to get an audience with Louis Napoleon III. And of course, he missed that audience, but he found a huge battle and found himself, because he was a good Christian person, as Danny has explained in his writings, trying to help. Dunant forgot all else. Help was crucially needed. 
Resolutely, he set up a makeshift hospital where the dying and wounded could receive attention and care in peace and quiet. So in a church in the cathedral, in fact, in Castiglione, he, for four or five days, worked to look after the wounded. And that's where he had his big idea for the Red Cross, to set up the Red Cross. He felt two things. He felt from his experience that this shouldn't be happening and wounded soldiers should not be just abandoned and left untreated. There should be an international law to protect wounded soldiers. And he thought that national humanitarian institutions needed to be better organized and to be supported by an organized international movement as well. Dunant and four other men formed the International Committee of the Red Cross. In 1864, an international diplomatic conference in Geneva was called. The result was the adoption of the first Geneva Convention for Neutral Humanitarian Aid and Protection for Wounded Soldiers. So he had the idea for the Red Cross. A couple of years later, 160 years ago this year, he wrote a book called A Memory of Solferino, which was an incredibly effective policy tract in which he described the war, the chaotic conditions of, of looking after the wounded, and said, we need to do two things, create an international law and start a, a global humanitarian movement. And amazingly, within about three years, he had achieved both those things. We had the first Geneva Convention in 1864, and we had the founding of the ICRC and then the founding of National Red Cross, Red Crescent Societies all over the world, which is why Solferino is such a powerful word for humanitarians today. And I called it Solferino 21 because it's 160 years later. I'm trying to look at the 21st century. And there's a bit of a nod there to another classic war book, which is called Catch-22 which was a famous American satire about the war in Italy in the 1940s. One of my favourite books, in fact. Paola, I was thinking while Hugo was talking there, you, of course, you're a professor of international law. You've got specialising in a way in the, in the laws of war, which are the Geneva Conventions. Without Henri Dunant, you might not even be working in the field you're working in. It might not exist. Well, I'm not sure. It depends. Um, of course, Harry Dunant gave an incredible contribution, as Hugo has underlined, to the development of the humanitarian side of the laws of warfare. But uh, war are also regulated by international law in relation to how to carry out hostilities and with which weapons. So this is the Hague Law, as it is called, which was regulated by the conventions of 1899 and 1907 and then subsequent developments, which therefore would have made perhaps war more inhumane without a réunion, but certainly law would have still some role to play in regulating the conduct of hostilities at least. Danny, I want to bring you in because you've got your hand up. Well, I mean, Hugo, congratulations on the book, but we shouldn't forget at about the same time as Solferino, a law professor at Columbia, Lieber, under the orders of Abraham Lincoln, had already begun something called the Lieber Code which also tried to establish certain do's and don'ts about how warfare should be executed. Yeah, I, I make that totally clear. I mean, the history of humanitarianism is, is an entangled history. There are many founders. And I would agree, Danny, that actually the Lieber Code, which of course dozens and dozens of articles, detailed prescriptions about the conduct of war, was a much more comprehensive document than Dunant's 10-article original convention. 
but it was a guide to one military. It wasn't yet an international law, but but I totally agree. That's in a way been more influential to the laws of war than the original Geneva Convention. So I'm already seeing that I hardly need to participate here because you're all with your hands up and all got something to say. Paula, I'm going to come to you because you had your hand up and then I do have a subsequent question. Yes, I think that, uh, of course, Daniel is perfectly correct and also Hugo has underlined how the, the web of rules that have developed is the product of many contributors, of course. But I think that the biggest intuition of Henri Dunant was, uh, uh, first of all, to lobby for the creation you know, of the first international treaty, which was concluded in, in Geneva, the first Geneva Convention in the, in the Villa Moignier, which is now the headquarters of the Geneva Academy of International Humanitarian Law and Human Rights, so he had lobbied for the adoption of the first international treaty, which was not the case of the Liber Code. And secondly, of course, to lobby for the creation of a movement for humanitarian help or fair. So I think this is something that without his vision could have perhaps been developed later, but he was the first. I think, imagine while we're on the subject of, you know, the entangled history, we must mention the Russians, because I think in a way, you know, and the Russians and Americans have been meeting this week in Geneva, you know, discussing war again. But in a way, it was really Russia, Washington and Geneva that were the three big places where this law was really developed because of the Tsar's impetus behind the Hague legislation. So really, Russia, America, the Hague, Geneva were really core of that melting pot at that moment in history. On a dash to avert conflict, America's chief diplomat in Geneva to confront the Russians. The mild-mannered American up against his blunt, combative counterpart. Well, as you say, and they're, they're still meeting uh, in Geneva, the Russians and the Americans, theoretically also to try and find ways of not going to war. Um, we wish them every success. Just going back to Solferino, though, because you call it Solferino 21, and that's because we are now in the 21st century. Now, you make the point in your book that that battle was the last time two kings led their armies into battle. This is the classic kind of warfare that hadn't changed too much since the Middle Ages, serried ranks of young men. Now, the original Geneva Conventions arose out of the conditions they faced. But of course, warfare has changed immeasurably since then. A diplomatic conference again brings together in Geneva practically all the states of the world. Its effect will be to alleviate human suffering, to bring aid to all military and civilian persons incapacitated by wounds, sickness, captivity or loss of their freedom. Hugo, one of the things you talk about is... We need to be alert, I think you're trying to tell us, for new ways of fighting. I mean, not, not just humanitarians, but politicians as well. We need to think about what's coming down the road. Can you tell us a bit about that? And then, Paul, I want to bring you in because I know you're looking at this subject very closely as well. Yes, because when I looked at Solferino and I started studying that moment of sort of military history and political history, I realised that at that moment in 1859, warfare was at a tipping point in the same way that it's at a tipping point today in 2022. And at Dunant's time, it was moving from sort of enlightenment war and about to tip into what I've called industrial warfare, when suddenly, you know, you've got trains, planes, bombs, rapid fire machine guns, the Gatling gun, the Maxim gun, that's killing hundreds of people in a minute. And that change happened very quickly after Solferino. And that 
period of industrial warfare then drove us through the terrible wars of the 20th century. And we are at another Solferino moment today because we're at a tipping point today where we're passing from industrial warfare to computerized warfare. And we are in the process of inventing three new domains of warfare. You know, for millennia, we fought on land and sea. Then in the 20th century, we took to the air and we fought on land, sea and air. Today, we're inventing and taking three new domains, which is outer space, cyberspace, and information space. So warfare is dramatically spreading across um, three new surfaces, if you like, and it is becoming incredibly computerized. We are having autonomous weapons, drones, probably more soldiers behind screens than um, in the front line, etc. So we're at this tipping point now, moving into the age of computerized warfare, which will leave elements of industrial warfare behind and take some with it. But we are at that dramatic point as it was at Solferino. Warfare that lets nations and loners do battle without guns or bombs. These days, the biggest threat we face may be a rogue actor with a laptop and a desire to wreak havoc. Do you agree with that, Paolo? I mean, I know you, you, you're focused specifically on the subject of lethal autonomous weapons or killer robots, as, as some people call them. Do you agree with Hugo that we're at a, a tipping point when it comes to warfare? Of course, Hugo is certainly right. What perhaps we shall forget, however, that there is a, the war of the rich and the war of the poor. So the ways war are fought by the Westerners' military power is moving to these spaces. But then when it comes to the war of the poor, traditional way of fighting war still remains. So we have such a big contradiction here where uh, big powers may afford the luxury you know, of fighting through autonomous weapons, through drones and through things like that, while uh, armed forces by non-state armed groups, uh, the landmines and things like that are still very much used and still causing problems around the world. Danny, you had your hand up. Yeah, I wanted to follow what Paolo just said. When Hugo introduced this Battle of Solferino, he mentioned Austro-Hungarian Empire, French, etc. But today there are lots of wars dealing with armed non-state actors who don't sign conventions. And they're really out of that question of, of legal limits to what can be done. So in a sense, in the 21st century, where there may be laws about warfare, the armed non-state actors are outside of that sphere and outside of those conventions. Hugo, I did see that you wanted to come in. And one of the things I wanted to ask you about is that not only is that you see the method of warfare changing, but the reasons you, for example, point to, to climate change as something that could really cause conflict in the future. I mean, in a way, your book can be seen as a, as a kind of pay attention to these signs now rather than wait for the digital warfare and the, the big conflict over climate change. You also suggest that we're perhaps returning to big power wars, US, Russia, China. I mean, we all hope not. But Well, that's the other thing I think is important that I emphasize very much in the book is that I think the tipping point in war is changing the nature of warfare, the domains of warfare, the technology of warfare. But I think we are also back, actually, in a Solferino world of great powers, great empires again. And that's why I talk about the fact that the, that the wars in the 21st century so far have been militarily small. It isn't their conflict that the ordinary men, women and children of Afghanistan are paying the price for the struggle being fought for their country. 
Seven children between 4 and 13 years old from a single family lost limbs one morning in April. It seems terrible to say this to Syrians and Yemenis and Afghans, but actually the civilian death rates, the military death rates have been very low compared to the 20th century. These have been militarily small wars. But we are now faced with the risk of big war again between great powers, between China, Russia, Europe, US, India, with extraordinary levels of military force at their disposal. It's a prospect as terrifying as it is unthinkable. A military showdown between two nuclear-armed superpowers, the United States and China. Russian forces training near the border with Ukraine. Just some of thousands deployed there since the autumn, raising fears in the West that Russia's planning an invasion. That is, I think, a real risk. And if you read their security policies, they're, they're sort of done with small wars now. You know, the Americans said in their last security policy that the war on terror is over, there's just always going to be bits of it. But the big challenge now is strategic competition, peer-to-peer -peer warfare, looking at China and Russia. And the Chinese and the Russians have said the same. So we are now having great powers preparing for great wars again. And that has massive implications for humanitarian policy, because then you see not people worrying about killing civilians in tens or twenties or hundreds. You see wars of survival between great powers, which could cause millions of military and civilian casualties. Danny? Yeah, I mean, we have kind of a hybrid where we have these small civil wars or armed non-state actors at the same time, major things. But I want to come back to the notion of agency. In other words, first of all, I would wonder who's going to carry out these battles. And secondly, the question of punishment. Hugo, you have a background in theology, as I do. Uh, and one of the things that I find missing with today's International Committee of the Red Cross is a moral compass. In other words, there are violations of humanitarian rules all the time. Sometimes powerful people get punished, but fairly rarely. But no one's standing up and saying this is just wrong. Not just lawfare, but it's just wrong morally. And where are we in that situation in the 21st century? I think we've gone back from where we were before. The country's leading representatives were to be held accountable for their actions by an international military tribunal for the first time in world history. 24 high-ranking Nazis were charged and made to stand trial in the German city of Nuremberg. Paula, do you agree with that? I mean, I feel like I'm reporting all the time on maybe not the International Committee of the Red Cross because they are um, very low-key often about the things they know are happening. But with UN Human Rights, they're quite vocal. I feel I'm reporting all the time on things that are potential war crimes and crimes against humanity. I, I very much hope that Hugo and Daniel are not right in the sense that perhaps the powers are only preparing for new catastrophic uh, worse between them because if this is the case this is a disaster it's really to go backwards of centuries and then, then it's the failure of the collective security system of UN which was established in 1945 so let's hope that, that for the best of course for the future generation. We start in Germany where a former colonel from President Assad's regime in Syria has been found guilty of crimes against humanity. Today, the UN General Assembly voted to hold North Korean leaders accountable for human rights violations.
The fact that, that there is so many violations of, of, of war crimes and crimes against humanity, I think perhaps it was just because we have more means of information and we are more sensitive about this kind of news, uh, the, the teachings of international criminal law, the teachings of, of the laws of warfare are now in every major universities. This was not the case when I was a student. Uh, so there is more attention by the public opinion, which is, I think, is a good sign of a more mature society in this respect, at least. Returning to your scenario, Hugo, I mean, as Paolo said, we, I mean, we really do hope that big war between big powers doesn't happen. We perhaps foolishly rely on a certain amount of, of common sense from the superpowers. But if it were to happen, where does that leave civilians? You've also said we're moving to a different kind of warfare, more digitalized warfare. Where does it leave civilians? Where does it leave humanitarian work, which has such a big focus on the protection of civilians, the innocent victims of, of war, as, as the ICRC always likes to say. Well, I think that, you know, let's all hope that big war doesn't happen. But I think it's important to imagine and realise what it would be to help us prevent it, actually. So I think it's really important to take the blinkers off and see exactly what military strategists, the arms trade, the arms suppliers are preparing for. And then if we look at that, we can hopefully say we really don't want that. Um, so let's hope that, that happens. I think in terms of the other mega trends in the world at the moment, climate is something we really have to think about in relation to conflict. Can climate change cause wars? Well, the answer might surprise you. In 2014, the Department of Defense categorized climate change as a threat multiplier that could make future conflicts both more frequent and more deadly. Wars are going to be lived through by people who are also simultaneously living in parts of the Sahel and the Middle East and wherever wars emerge with increasing climate-related hazards. So you're going to be in a protracted war and you're also going to be having repeated floods, heat extremes, droughts, etc. So you're going to have these compounding megatrends on existing wars. But I'm also more worried in the book because I think climate will not just be a condition in which wars are lived and fought. I think climate may well become a cause of war. Climate change affects every aspect of life, damaging food systems, displacing millions, shaping the future of conflict. Lawyers already need to start thinking, you know, is it a legitimate form of self-defence if the state next to you is hoarding water in its efforts at climate adaptation and taking water away from you, if it's doing geoengineering in the skies above you to extract carbon and affecting your climate? Is that actually a rationale for self-defence to attack them because their mitigation, their adaptation is your deprivation, your deterioration? Danny, do you think that your average person like me or you, not a specialist in these fields, is prepared at all for this kind of scenarios or even aware? Well, you have the problem always to me, and Hugo knows this quite well at the ICRC where he was for several years, uh, the problem is the question of anticipating the future when you're running around trying to deal with 800,000 people on a border, when you're dealing with the situation of poverty in Afghanistan, how much time can you spend preparing for the 
these new kinds of things that are going on. I would agree with Danny. There is the problem of today for agencies, but I, I really feel proud of the ICRC. It's got a lot of people that can think as well as do. And I really do feel that they have seen ahead on new weapons. And I think they are now seeing ahead on climate as a condition in which people will have to endure war, climate change, but also as a potential cause of war. Let's be fair to that particular humanitarian organisation, the ICRC. Paula, you know they have been quite integral to the debate over lethal autonomous weapons, and they have been lobbying quite hard for the kind of regulations they would like to see. Is it, when we when we come back to that topic, is it the case that we need to be forward thinking and start thinking, you know, we need to almost preemptively ban some potential weapons before they really get off the drawing board? Of course, they are certainly right about the ban on lethal autonomous weapons because really we, we reach a point where this is totally immoral not to delegate to a machine the possibility to make a decision to kill someone. The world is entering a new age of warfare. A digital revolution is sweeping through every military force on the planet. Leading the charge is artificial intelligence, a technology with the power to upend everything about human conflict, including whether humans are involved at all. The so-called killer robot, a fully autonomous weapon designed to hunt and kill without a human involved. Although artificial intelligence is already abundantly used you know, in order to decide the target, so the little autonomous weapons will be simply a step forward of a situation of technological development that exists. The decision to select a target is based on data processed by an algorithm and the human operator has simply no time to decide whether or not the information he receives or she receives from the algorithm is correct or not and push the button. Uh, so we rely heavily on artificial intelligence already. Well, let's um, simplify a little bit. Let's get back to one of the main things that we wanted to talk about, which is if war is changing and international law to a certain extent has adapted, we know we have new protocols to the Geneva Conventions and so on. What about humanitarianism itself? The way that aid agencies work, I mean, we're in Geneva, the kind of world humanitarian headquarters, strategies are planned from here. Hugo, you are diplomatically, I would say, critical of some of the approaches of modern humanitarian work. I am. I, I think I've spent, gosh, jolly nearly 40 years now in, in international humanitarian work in one way or another. And I think periods since do not have seen the most fantastic achievements and progress in, in humanitarian aid that saved millions and millions of lives in my lifetime and before. But I do think the results is not, in fact, what Henri Dunant wanted. And my main criticism is the fact that Dunant was quite keen to resource national humanitarian institutions, his Red Cross societies, his Red Crescent societies, and self-help mutual groups that were, were springing up, and they should be supported. And I'm afraid the whole history of the last 30 years has gone completely the other way. And we have been internationalizing humanitarian response and creating these massive super agencies like UNHCR, WFP, the ICRC, UNICEF, and some very big NGO networks. And they operate now effectively as a sort of imperial cartel. 
the United Nations has launched a record appeal for aid in what it's labelled the worst humanitarian crisis since the Second World War. And they really have regulatory capture and financial capture of humanitarian funds. And most of those funds come from Western-oriented states. So it is really a Western international system at the moment, dominated by Western institutions, big bureaucracies. And that's where I'm critical. I think we need, in the jargon, to do much more localization. We need to get back to Dunant's vision of creating national humanitarian institutions. And for the climate crisis, this will be crucial because there's no way this fairly limited Western system can actually meet all these needs. It won't even be able to get into China, get into Russia. It can't at the moment get into India. So it's only got its own sphere of influence anyway. And it won't be able to do it all. So it's got to help national institutions, a big humanitarian platform across many parts of the world, which can be the basis for local and national response, which it can then support as per Dunant's original vision. Paula, I see you nodding there. You want to come in? I totally, I totally agree with the analysis made by Hugo, and there is a fair amount of literature on that, commenting upon how the bureaucracy you know, of humanitarian workers, they often they stand in their office in front of their computer, uh, and very distant from the local population in need, and then also sometimes the perception you know, of the civilian population receiving help from those organizations is not to, to trust them, depending also on the reason behind the conflict and so on and so forth. So I think that Hugo analysis is very pertinent. There is uh, indeed in some situations, some armed conflicts, uh, the, the role is played more by the local, not impartial, <laughs> not principled humanitarian organizations than the, the principled humanitarian organization inspired by Henri Dunant. Danny, do you agree with that or do you want to, to, to go to bat for some of the big humanitarian organizations? No, I'm not going Geneva? to bat to anyone. Uh, my baseball career is over. Uh, what I see is that Hugo began and we began with the history of Solferino and Henri Duneau. That's 160 years ago. So the whole concept of humanitarianism, which was very religious at the time, has got to change because the world has evolved since then. The question is, can the organizations change? The problem is typical in Geneva to many other organizations, but certainly the concept of localizing instead of internationalizing, uh, I can only agree with Hugo. The question is how to do that. And I think that's something that the ICRC and all of the organizations here in Geneva are having trouble updating themselves because the world is changing so quickly. Well, we are almost at the end of this program. I'm going to ask you each one last question, the same question, but basically because, as Danny pointed out, Solferino is 160 years ago. Of course, things have changed. Nevertheless, we still have the Geneva Conventions. There's not... A week goes by without some media reporting on something to do with the Geneva Convention. So there must be something there. Hugo, I'm going to start again with you because you've devoted this book to some of this. What's worth keeping of Solferino and what do you think, well, we need to forget that now and move on? Well, I think Dunant's original insight was twofold. He said we need to find legal protections for the victims of war, and we need to organize our compassion better. And that still stands. So in my view, we've got to come up with new and simpler, as Paula has said, legal protections 
for people in war. And that means working really hard over the next 10 years over computerized warfare and people's rights in climate disasters as well. And then it needs organizing our compassion better. And that's what I said earlier. I really believe we have to de-internationalize. We're always going to need these important international institutions, but they've got to let go of a lot of money and a lot of control now because the, the level of climate disaster we potentially face, and if we have big war, they're just going to be appalling value for money. We need to drive the money close to the ground and build local institutions that will be there for the next 10, 20 years. We need to change those big institutions and strip out a lot of their middle management and send their resources to build up organizations on the ground that represent their citizens. Paola, can I come to you? What stays with us from Henri Dunant's vision that you think we absolutely have to hang on to? Well, let me speak as a lawyer now. I think that what I perhaps I would abandon is what also Hugo has mentioned, uh, the compassion. I think that we should be right enforcer. Instead of bringing help because of compassion, I think that we shall recognize that the victims of war have rights and we have to fulfill our obligation for them to be able to enjoy their rights. So I think that we shall move from this compassion attitude, which is very much religious background, to language in terms of rights of the victims. Danny, I'm going to give the last word to you then. I know you wanted to come in. Let me come back to compassion. When Dunar came back to Geneva after having seen the battle and spoke to his religious group, people left the next day on their own voluntary will to help the people there. And I think the point, Hugo's point about localizing compassion or organizing compassion, my worry would be that the compassion is no longer there. Uh, whether we have power legal rules or not, if the compassion's not there, it's not going to work. So if we can organize, localize, yes, but keep the compassion going. I think I kind of agree with Danny too. I think it's chicken and egg. I think the compassion came with the wounded soldier on the battlefield who wasn't even allowed a drink of water and the law was born out of the compassion. My problem is that sometimes uh, uh, when you speak of compassion, perhaps this can be the engine behind, uh, but then uh, you may conclude that some victims do not deserve your compassion and you don't help. Okay, we have indeed come to the end of Inside Geneva. My thanks to Hugo Slim, Paula Gaeta and Daniel Warner. And a reminder, Hugo Slim's book, Solfrino 21, is out on the 27th of January. A reminder, you've been listening to Inside Geneva, a Swiss Info production. You can email us on insidegeneva at swissinfo.ch and subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. Let us know what you think of the programme and check out our previous episodes from a long, hard look at the United Nations, now it's 75, to an account of 10 years of war in Syria, to the history of how the international treaties on landmines and on enforced disappearances came about. I'm Imogen Folks. Thank you for listening and do join us again on Inside Geneva. Discover science and innovation in Switzerland with the Swiss Connection podcast. 
In the current series, we visit CERN and explore what they're up to next in their quest to solve the mysteries of the universe. We uncover groundbreaking discoveries in a Roman archaeological site and get the first glimpse of an exciting supersonic plane powered by hydrogen. From the tiniest particles to the vastness of space, satisfy your scientific curiosity by listening to the Swiss Connection podcast for a mind-expanding experience with Swiss Info. Listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure to follow or subscribe to get your latest episode on time.